0: Acts 5 through 6 7. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the Word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, who we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. The word of the Lord.
1: So uh, if you're on page five in the bulletin, you'll see an outline there. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, this outline will look very familiar to you because it's the exact same one. So you may be wondering, uh, is Eric going to do a repeat and a recycle? And I'm not going to. Uh, this, this outline accidentally got printed. But let me give you today's outline for those who are taking notes. And our middle school and high school students, I know you, uh, you're taking notes uh, for your class after this. So let me give you the outline. The title of the message is How a Church Learns to Go Out. How a Church Learns to Go Out. And the three points we're going to look at are the problem. We just read the story. There's a problem in this story. Uh, The solution and then the result. So the problem, the solution, and the result. We've been looking at the book of Acts this fall. Our focus has been on the first part of the book of Acts, chapters 1 through 12 mainly. And we're calling our series Blueprint because that's that's how the book of Acts was written. That's how it's meant to be read. It's meant to be read like we're looking at a blueprint design of how God built the church, of how Jesus built the church. If you remember, uh, if you were here for the very first sermon, chapter 1, If you have your Bible, you can check it out. Chapter 1, verse 4. This is the second volume from the author Luke, same author of the Gospel of Luke, and he says there at the beginning of chapter 1 in Acts, he said, I told you what Jesus began to do and to teach. The book of Acts, he's saying, is what Jesus continued to do and continues to do and to teach. So when you, when you read the book of Acts, it's, it's a one-of-a-kind. There's no other book like it. You get, to, you get to have insight into some key questions, some big questions about the Christian faith. How did Christianity go from a small but growing Jewish sect in one city to a thriving worldwide movement? How did a faith that was resisted, we read about this resistance from the very beginning, it was persecuted, this faith was threatened, There was just a small and strange minority of people doing their thing in Jerusalem. How did this group of people grow to become the most influential force in the ancient world and then in the Western world? It's a question of history. It's a fascinating question to consider. Historically, by looking back, we can ask uh, well, what made the church so attractive? How did this happen? What made it so non-ignorable for so many people that were coming from so many different cultures and backgrounds? And if you're here this morning and you're exploring Christianity, you have questions, you're not sure what you believe, this text that we read this morning actually helps answer some of those questions for us. And my Christian friends, today we can ask this question in reverse. As Christianity goes from becoming the most or one of the most influential forces in the Western world to becoming more of a strange and small minority in our culture. What does that mean for the church? Uh, Last night in in our neighborhood, I was having, um, we had a block party. So people from all over the neighborhood were gathered together and we were eating and I was uh, coming out that I was a pastor to a lot of people. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Okay, what's the reaction? And one guy uh, just said, uh, "Basically, it's like what's what's attendance like? I don't know anybody." He told me, "I don't know anybody who goes to church regularly," and that's um, likely, from a human perspective, only going to increase. More and more people, even in Southern California and America, won't know anybody who goes to church. So, for Christians, this story is important. Uh, do, does the church turn inward? And just focus on ourselves? Do we build walls around ourselves and protect our identity and our beliefs? Do we change our beliefs? Do we need to change our methods so more people will be interested in what we're saying and doing? As we've been talking about this fall, the answer that Acts gives uh, to all these questions really can be summarized in a two-fold answer as we see how did Jesus build this community called the church. There are two big things we've been talking about. We've been talking about how the message of Jesus, the gospel went deep into this group of people through teaching, through learning. Every day they were teaching. They were in this rich community. It says they did life together. They were one heart and one mind. Every single need in the community was met. It was so deep. And the gospel went very deep, but the gospel also went out from them. The gospel went out from them in boldness and in love. And this is how we could outline really the very first, we could, we could outline all of Acts, but even Acts 1 through 12, which is what we're looking at. 1 through 5, we, we've just looked at those uh, the past few weeks. We see the gospel going deep into people's lives with that focus on teaching and community life. And then here we are in a transition, Chapter 6 through 12, we see the gospel, it starts going out. We see that the, the church doesn't just exist for itself. They went out with the message of Jesus. They formed new, deep gospel communities in places they didn't even want to visit or go, and they weren't interested in these people like Samaria and beyond Samaria in different parts of Judea. Why is all that important? That's, that's context, that's introduction back into the story that we just read, chapter 6, chapter five, or 542, 6 through 7 that we just read. This text, that story is the transition. This is a transition story from the church going so deep to learning how not only to go deep, but to go out. You know, a church that only goes deep and never goes out We might call that an ingrown church, an ingrown church. The word ingrown is a word that rightly might make you cringe. If you Google ingrown, the first things that will come up are ingrown hair, ingrown toenail, and ingrown pimple. And that's disgusting. If the church stayed in Acts 1 through 5, this is the point. If they just stayed in 1 through 5, do you know what would have happened? Maybe they would have been a great... Deep church in one city. But that's not what God wanted. The church then would have become ingrown. Acts 6 through 12 shows us how God kept this from happening. He said, I don't want you to be an ingrown church. But how can a person, how can a church do both? It's hard. Going out is uncomfortable. It involves risk and suffering and opposition. It's not natural for any of us, and what we will see here in the book of Acts is a church, and each person learns to go out with training, with training from God. You have to understand this before we get into this text. This is kind of like what you would call... hope everyone's okay with that, that bang. This is what you would call karate kid training. If you've seen the, the movie Karate Kid, the original Karate Kid... It's one of the best movies of all time. We just had my kids watch it. If you're not familiar with the story of Karate Kid, there is a young boy. He moves to California. He gets bullied uh, by mean California kids, and he has to learn how to defend himself against them. He wants to learn karate. And he finds out his building manager is a karate master. He's like, train me. Teach me karate so I can defend myself. And so, if you know the story, he goes over to the karate master's house, and first He paints his fence. Paint the fence. He's just painting this giant fence for hours. And then he has him sand the floor, his deck. Sand it. Left and right, sand it. And then he's not done. Then he says, I want you to wax all my cars. He has all these old cars. Wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. Hours and hours. And the kid is like, I came here to learn karate, not to be your slave. But the great moment of insight comes when he shows him all the moves that he's been teaching him, wax on, wax off, paint the fence, are actually karate moves. So Mr. Miyagi, the great teacher, he's using a training method that Daniel, the the character in Karate Kid, said, what are you doing? How is this helping? But Mr. Miyagi said, this is the kind of training you need. It doesn't make sense to you at the moment. But it's going to train you to learn karate. I share that because this passage, trust me, it'll make sense as we go on, is how God trains the church. It's not what we might expect. The lessons are not the things that we think we need to learn, but it's how he trains the church to learn to go outward. So let's talk about the problem. Um, I say the problem, but actually if we consider the context of chapter 5, there was more than one problem going on here. There were problems, plural. After the story we looked at last week, we talked about Ananias and Sapphira. Later on in chapter 5, we don't have time to to look at it all. It tells us a story about after more miraculous healings were taking place, more preaching was happening, more people were coming to faith and becoming Christians. It says, chapter 5, verse 17, the high priest rose up out of jealousy. The high priest was the most influential and powerful religious leader in Judaism at the time. Very, very significant person. He put them in jail, the the early church, the disciples. He had them flogged and ordered them not to ever speak about Jesus again. And what did they do? It's in chapter 5, verse 42. It's in your bulletin. Every day in the temple... They're public, and in various homes, they continue teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So there was a problem here of external opposition. It was getting more intense. It was getting more severe for them. And then, right after that, in chapter 6, verse 1, we learn about another problem. This was not an external problem. This was an internal problem. Look at verse 1. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. What's happening here? Well, there were at least two cultural groups in the church at the time in Jerusalem. There were the Hebraic Jews, as it says. They spoke Aramaic. Uh, they lived in Palestine and Jerusalem. They were from there. And there were the Hellenistic Jews. These were Jewish people, but they spoke Greek and likely they traced their lineage back um, outside of Jerusalem and Palestine to the rest of the Greco-Roman world, and they had come back into Jerusalem. So there were language differences, but there were also significant cultural differences between these two groups. So the Hellenistic Jews felt like their widows were being overlooked in favor of the Hebraic widows as they were distributing food and care to them. So this is a very sensitive matter. There are two cultures here trying to coexist. So what happened? It says in verse 1, there arose a complaint. Now a major theme in the book of Acts is that Jesus is sovereign. He is at the right hand of God. He is in control despite opposition, despite sometimes evidence that seems to us to be to the contrary. He is in control. He has a purpose. And he has a plan. So in light of that, we can imagine Jesus looking down at the church in chapter 5 and say, saying, they're doing pretty well. They're handling external opposition well, even. They're thriving in community. They're spending time in Scripture together. They're eating together. Look at how they're doing. They're ready for their next lesson. They're ready to make an impact outside of Jerusalem They're ready now. This community can make an impact on the world. So I'm going to bring them complaints and conflict. Now, what church, uh, what church member, what church leader, what pastor would say, thank you, Jesus, for bringing us complaints and conflict? We are so grateful for it. What person would say that about your family? Thank you for the complaints. Or in the workplace? Thank you Jesus for allowing complaints to take place. But this is lesson 1. Complaints and conflict can make a church stronger. Complaints conflict do not have to be seen primarily as threats or as problems. And did you see here, that's not how the 12 apostles treated it. Instead, they recognized by God's grace an opportunity for the church to become stronger. The church learned to work all together through conflict. You see how everyone was involved. They gathered everybody. I don't know how they did it. This is like 5,000 people. They said, there's a problem. Let's learn together how to deal with this. Trust was deepened in leadership. The problem, the complaint wasn't ignored or overlooked or avoided by the church or its leadership. It wasn't squashed by the leadership. Leadership wasn't threatened. Instead, the problem was acknowledged. It was shared. People felt valued. The way the church handled internal conflict actually convinced, notice this, it actually convinced the external opposition to convert to Christianity. Did you see 6-7? These were the opponents Chapter 5 says all the priests were opposed to the gospel. They they said, stop talking about Jesus. And then, in verse 7, something got their attention. We'll talk about that later. A great number of our complaints. I don't know if you have ever complained. I know I have. But isn't it true that a great number of our complaints come from the feeling of being overlooked? At work, we might be overlooked in a promotion or in recognition, so we complain. What's wrong with these people doing things the wrong way? Don't they see what I'm doing? In our family, we could be overlooked by our parents or by a spouse who's engrossed in something, engrossed in their work or on their phone all the time. I'm being overlooked. What about me? I'm over here. We complain in friendship if we're overlooked in time spent or why are you spending so much time with that person? What about me? I thought we were friends. And it happened here. It happened in the church. And when we're overlooked, what do we feel? We, we feel not valued. We don't feel important. We feel unloved. And when we feel devalued, when we feel overlooked, we don't always respond that well. That's actually what happened here as well. The word used for complaint here in the text, let me tell you this Greek word. It's gongosmos. Gongismos. I only teach Greek words when they're really cool. This one's really cool. And you can hear it. It's considered like an onomatopoeia word. It's like gongosmos, gongosmos. Everybody's like grumbling and gongosmosing all over the place. And that word actually is the same word used in the Greek version of the Old Testament uh, in the story of, Ag- of Exodus 16 and Numbers 14, that's the story of when Israel, who'd been delivered miraculously out of slavery, they're wandering through the wilderness. They've been fed miraculously from God, the manna, and they start gongesmasing, gong-gis-ma- it's hard to say, gongesmasing against Moses and the leadership. And they say, where's our carne sada? <laughs> we want meat. We want to go back to Egypt where we were slaves because we don't have meat. And it's a terrible story in the Old Testament. They're wandering through the wilderness. God is preparing them. He's teaching them. He's shaping them into his people. And they're just saying, we're complaining. Why did you bring us out here? What are you doing? The complaint and the conflict, though, it's a part of God's blueprint. Let me share a quote uh, from Dennis Johnson, who wrote a great book on the book of Acts. He says, the early Christians found that the differences that threaten division can be God's prod." to look beyond oneself, beyond the circle of our kind of people, to see the rich diversity of people from every nation, tribe, people, and language being woven by the Spirit into a multicolored, many-textural tapestry, a church that only touches our kind of people in language, culture, social status, and background is a shrunken distortion of Christ's holy, Catholic, universal church. You know, when God brings different and new people into our lives which by that i mean everyone who's not you everyone who's not me is a different person different story different background that is an opportunity for us sometimes we can complain when we get together with a lot of people who are not like us it happens in family in the workplace it happens in the church but what Dennis Johnson is pointing out what this text is saying is these this is a part of God's blueprint to teach the church, to help us work through what it looks like to love people who are not like us. This was actually preparation for the church to be, become more uncomfortable, reaching across more cultures, not just Greek-speaking Jews or Jewish converts, but Greeks, just plain old Greeks who cared nothing about the Old Testament or the Jewish people or religion, knew nothing about Jesus, How will they love and serve people so different from them if they can't even love their fellow Jewish people? That was a problem. Summary, in spite of opposition from without and opposition from within, the gospel keeps moving deeper into people's lives, and God starts moving his people out. Let's talk about the solution. We need to look closer at the solution here. It's not quite as straightforward as it might seem because... As you might have already guessed, I've already talked about it a little bit, the problem had many layers to it. Okay, these were widows. We said that. Now, in the in the first century, we have to understand what that meant to be a widow. It meant to be very vulnerable, dependent, completely dependent on the house of uh, your father or your brothers. And if you didn't have a father or brothers, you were left with nothing, no protection, no property. One historian estimates 33% of all women in the first century at this time were widows. And the percentage just increases with age. Not only were they widows, they were Hellenistic Jews, which we already mentioned. They spoke Greek. They were less culturally Jewish. Even in in Jerusalem, they worshipped in different synagogues. You had the Greek-speaking synagogues and the Jewish-speaking synagogues. So these two groups didn't spend a lot of time together. And you might imagine that they might have suspected each other, the Hebraic Jews kind of looked down on the Hellenistic Jews. They felt like they were the pure ones speaking their language. So what did this mean? Hellenistic Jewish widows were vulnerable socially, and they were a cultural and numeric minority in the church. So they were vulnerable, they were a cultural and numeric minority in this young church. A quick sidebar on this, on on what what it looks like, what it means to be a cultural or numeric minority of any kind. What often happens is the cultural and numeric majority often overlooks them and their needs. Happens often. Why? Because things are going well. This is normal. This is just how things work. For the cultural and numeric minority, things are set up For them, So they often overlook the needs of other people because they don't see it. Things are working well for them. It's hard for us when we're in that position to see or enter into the experience of a cultural or minority people or community. But look what happened here. The apostles, they took this very seriously. This wasn't a minor issue. The vulnerable and the overlooked in the world were not to be overlooked by the church or in the church, when it came down to the word and prayer, verse four, chapter six, and the teaching of the word and taking care of the needs of the vulnerable, especially cultural and numeric minorities in the community, do you see it wasn't an either or? They said, this has to be a both end. If they took the word of God and prayer seriously, they had to care for the vulnerable. A few examples from the Old Testament. Exodus, do not take advantage of the widow, or the fatherless. If you do, they cry out to me and I will certainly hear their cry. Again from Exodus. The Lord your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Deuteronomy, cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. And all the people say, amen. Isaiah 1, another example, last one. Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Do you see how this would work? If the apostle said, we are serious about the word of God. This was the word of God. They had to be as serious, equally serious about caring for the vulnerable, the widows in their midst. So in verse 2, chapter 6, you have to see that the, the, uh, the apostles were not saying this is beneath us. We don't wait on tables. We are the leaders. We do word and prayer. Their calling was to the ministry of the word and prayer. But their point was, we cannot neglect our main calling of teaching and praying. It is central, but the ministry of compassion and care is non-negotiable. Now look, look at Look at this text again. This is describing to us the daily job of the 12 apostles. Do you see this? This is a daily thing in uh, verse 42, every day. And then in verse 1, this is daily distribution. Here's their daily job. They were leading and teaching a church of 5,000 people in their homes, at the temple. They were administering the daily distribution of food to all widows, probably a big number. They were praying regularly at all set hours of prayer. They were praying privately with people. They were collecting money that was given to them. They were making decisions about how to minister to all the needy in their community. And then there was a complaint. Somebody said, we're being overlooked. And this was a great moment for the 12 apostles to say, there's no way we can do all this. We can't do it all. What an important moment for them. What an important moment for the church. What an important moment for all of us when we learn lesson number two in our lives. Put it on the screen. Ministry is not for the professional few. There's so much wisdom and humility here by God's grace that the apostles showed. They appointed leaders, leaders of a similar background. All these uh, men that were appointed to lead this were also Hellenistic. One was actually non-Jewish. So, they brought them to the table when it came to leadership. What this shows us is that a healthy church inside, with more leaders, more ownership, more people serving, will have more of an impact outside. A healthy church inside, with more leaders, with more people owning, will have more of an impact outside. In the context of Acts, the story of the gospel going out throughout all the ancient world, it's only when the word and prayer are not neglected and more people are serving and leading in the church, does the gospel move beyond one city, Jerusalem, to other places in the world? A few things for us to think about here. Points of application. This is a challenge to us today. It's a challenge to us in many different ways, um, but it's also a challenge directly to us uh, in the church. It's a challenge to me as a pastor. There are two things that tend to shape us. Eric mentioned one of these in the liturgy already. There's things that shape us deeply here in Southern California and Orange County. One is consumerism, and one is what I'll call celebrityism. So let's talk about these in light of this consumerism. Um, Did you see here how everyone was a part of the solution? Now, often it's hard to receive a complaint. The people who were complaining didn't say, hey, there's a problem here. Can we help? No, they were gongosmosing. They were just complaining. They were saying, you fix it. But the apostles gathered everyone together and said, let's all figure out how we can be a part of the solution. We can't fix this. We all have to. They chose other leaders and appointed them. I was reminded by a friend this week. You know what it would have been easier for everyone? They could have just started the Hellenistic Jewish Presbyterian Church of Jerusalem in a different place and just separated off. Easier, speak the same language, we do things the same way, we have the same culture, but they said no. There is a place for many different churches, a diversity of churches, but in this instance, what we see God saying is that that would be a consumeristic choice, to choose what's more comfortable and easy. I'm going to show you a slide, a picture. I'm kind of embarrassed to show it, but I'm going to show it to you. Oh, there it is. It's, you can't read that, can you? It's very hard to read. Um, what does it say again? I have to see. It says the family. Oh, yeah. Presbyterian family connection. <laughs> That's just a nice way of saying it. Presbyterian church splits. That's the nice way to say it. Well, this is a family tree, okay? What I'm showing you is all the different uh, Presbyterian churches out there just in the United States. Um, and there's story, there's history between all, with all of this. There's important discussions to be had here. But in one sense, what I want to say about this is this, this grieves me, and I think this grieves the heart of God. This is just the Presbyterian church. Every denomination and type of church has their own flowchart like this. And the sad history is that because we can't learn often to get along, and because complaints arise and people feel like they're overlooked for whatever reason, sometimes really good reasons, we just start another church. But this is what happens when we all look for a church that fits me. The extreme example would be the church of Eric Kapoor all by myself over here because that's the perfect church that fits everything that I want. That would be the extreme of consumerism. But here we see before the church was ready to go out, God said, let me teach you It's a training lesson, like a Mr. Miyagi lesson. You don't think this is what you need to go out, but you need to learn to combat, resist consumerism. By the grace of God, it can be done. There's also celebrityism, uh, celebrity pastorism, we could call it. In Acts 1 through 5, we read about Peter and James and John. Those are the three closest disciples to Jesus, Those were the heroes of the early church and the leader. They're doing everything, and they're doing incredible ministry. But then in the the, uh, second part of Acts 6, beyond 6, 7, 8, 9, we start to read about Stephen. Who's Stephen? Philip. What's he doing going out there preaching? And we start to learn about Saul. Who are these other people? Did you know that the 12 apostles had to be okay with this? Acts is not their story. This wasn't about them. This was about the gospel. This was about Jesus moving forward. They had to take a step back because they were not the celebrities. Instead of it being all about them, they worked in teams. There were the 12. There were the seven. They developed new leaders, Stephen and Philip. Here they began serving uh, widows. You see them later on. They start preaching to new people. Stephen preaches um, to the Jewish community, the Hellenistic community there, and, and Philip is sent out to the Samaritans. And so they're being equipped. Ephesians 4 says it's the job of pastors and leaders to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So in order to combat celebrityism, pastors are guilty, congregations are guilty, we need to declare war on one little word, I think, the word the. In the Bible, there's no the ministry. There's just ministry. Everyone is called to ministry. John Stott, pull that quote back up. All Christians without exception, being followers of him who came not to be served but to serve, are themselves called to ministry, indeed to give their lives in ministry. Here's the connection here in the text. In 6 verse 4, it says, We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. If you go back to chapter 6, verse 2, it says, it would not be right to, to, for us to give up preaching the word to wait on tables, wait on tables, the ministry of the word. Those come from the same Greek word, diakonon, where we get the word deacon, they mean serve. They mean ministry. They mean minister. Both were forms of ministry, the preaching of the word and the serving and the meeting of needs all ministry. And it took the whole church, more and more people, realizing I'm called to ministry too for this church to be ready to make an impact beyond itself. Okay, the problem and the solution, let's talk about the result. If you look at verses 5 through 7 in chapter 6, they chose a team. They officially appointed them to ministry. They prayed. They laid hands on them. And then look at verse 7. It says, the word of God, this is the result, spread, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So, it says, therefore, therefore, there's a connection between all these priests coming to faith and what happened in verses 1 through 6. This is significant because before this story, the priests were opposing the faith. The high priest was adamantly opposed to the faith, and all the priests were threatening this early Christian movement, saying, No more, don't speak about Jesus. And after this story, large amounts of priests are joining the church. Why? I think it was this. They said, look at these people. They're teaching and caring for the poor. Look at the ministry that's happening here. Instead of holding on to power, they're giving it away. They're not guarding it for their own comfort and position. Look, These leaders are giving it away. They're sharing it. The leaders and everyone is giving up their comfort and position to care for the overlooked. They are a servant community. And that's what we are supposed to be. These are priests. What is the job of a priest? What was the job of the priest in Israel? They were to bring the people into God and bring God out to the people. They were supposed to be a servant community. Their main jobs were to serve the people through sacrifices in the temple and also through teaching prayer and care of the poor. So they said, how is this group of people doing our job way better than us? They couldn't deny it. This, this community had this priestly spirit. They had a serving spirit. There was a connection here between the problem, the solution, and the result. A church that could have become engrown with complaints and opposition Instead, through this solution, this spirit of service and ministry grew instead of a spirit of selfishness. And the result was that the most opposed people to Christianity were drawn in. It's phenomenal. It turned opponents into converts. When a person, when a whole community has a true spirit of service, not of selfishness, it's rare. It's hard. It's why they needed God's training. It's why we as people need God's training. Somehow the church had a culture from its leader on down saying here's what we do. We wait on tables. We have to understand here the picture of service, waiting on tables. Some of you, I don't know if you've been a waiter or a waitress. That's a hard job. Hats off to you. In the Bible's metaphor, table service, there are only two groups. There's the waiters and the waitresses, and there's those who are reclining At the table. You either recline at the table or you wait on tables. Okay, question, which one would you rather be? Kicking back at your table? Or would you rather be a waiter or a waitress? At your workplace, in your family, in your marriage, in the church? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture a table. You can close your eyes. Picture a table. On this table is your favorite food. It's really, really good. Just picture that. It's a nicely set table. Your favorite meal is there. Your favorite drink is there too. It's just right there waiting for you. It's cold. You're sitting down. As you picture this, are you sitting down at the table? Or are you standing up to serve somebody else your favorite meal? I know for me, I'm I'm sitting down at that table like, this is for me. Yes. Someone else serve me. This was so challenging and humbling to me this week. We, some of you know we had a, a kind of a tough week as a family. Um, I won't go into the details, but one dinner, I was, I was the waiter serving food. And it was my job, and I was, I was supposed to do it. I was getting it all ready, and I was so hungry. And I was like, everybody else was, was sitting, and I was serving the table, and I was so hungry. And I was hangry, and I was like, why am I doing this all by myself? I'm the one that should be sitting at this table. And isn't that how we get often when it comes time for us to take the place of a waiter or a waitress? You know, this wasn't just waiting on tables. This was waiting on tables of people who were complaining. They could have said, look here. Hellenistic widows, thank you for your complaint. Put it in the box, complaint box over there. Have you ever thought about how we're being overlooked? Have you seen my calendar? Do you know my daily schedule? I don't have time for this. So how did they do it? How did they go from sitting at the table to standing beside the table and saying, we're here to serve? It all goes back to verse 42. Look at it again in chapter 5. Every day. They needed to do this every day. In the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news, the gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah. Lesson three is this. To look outside of ourselves, we must continually look to how we have been served by Jesus. Stay with me on this last point. Most people in other religions view God God as the one who's reclining at the table. He's saying to humanity, serve me, serve me well in your life. You will get a place at my table, right? God has the blessing. God has the keys to the kingdom of heaven, to the doors of heaven, to earn his blessings, to get a place in heaven, to sit at the table of God. It depends on how good we live, right? How faithful we are. God is at the table. We are serving and we are saying to God, what can I do for you to earn your blessing? What can I do? to have a place at the table. This is how most people in most religions view God. Christianity says it's the other way around. That's completely backwards. Christianity says, well, no one deserves a place reclining at the table with God. No one can earn a spot. Our spirit of selfishness is too great. If you're in the presence of God, sitting at his table, immediately you will know you don't belong there. A number of years ago, I went into a restaurant. It was in New York City. Nice restaurant. I didn't know we were going there. My friend took me there. I was dressed not this nice. I wasn't dressed that nice. I walked into this place, Don Frisco's Steakhouse. You know of it. And everybody was wearing a power suit. And they were like looking very successful. And I just was like, I want to go away now. I'm going to leave out there. I knew I didn't belong. Christianity says, if you know the true God, you will know you cannot sit at his table, dressed how you are and how good you are with our spirit of selfishness that runs so deep. But Christianity says God isn't at the table. God isn't at the table. We, in all of our sin and our rags and our clothing, with no money to to pay, God is saying, you sit down. What can I do for you? Luke twenty two twenty seven. 27. Jesus said, Who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. I am among you as the one who waits on tables. Do you know when Jesus said this, he was at a table with his 12 disciples, eating his last meal with them. In verse 14, chapter 22 of Luke, when the hour came, it says he reclined at the table. The apostles were with him. And you know what he said? I have fervently desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. This is what I've been waiting for. But I tell you, I won't eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He says, now, it's my turn to step back. I'm no longer reclining at the table. In my death, in my suffering, all my life long, I have lived as a servant to do what for you, you cannot do for yourself. By his death in our place, we have a place at the table. Jesus, who deserves to recline, who deserves all our service, is the one who serves us. He said, I bestow on you a kingdom so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. You might think that in order to deal with our spirit of selfishness, to get a spirit of service every day, we need to stop and remind ourselves, serve, 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 serve harder, serve like Jesus. But that's not how it works. In 542, it says, every day they never stop learning the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is and will always be the one who is among us as a servant. Incredible. May that transform us into a church, into people who learn to go out to serve. Let's pray. Jesus. You, the great servant, you want us at your table even though you see us in all of our selfishness and how hard it is to serve others and how we are the complainers. When we're overlooked, we don't handle it well. We turn the other way when people are unlooked in our world, in our church, in our families, in our workplace. We struggle with it. We can't look outside of ourselves. We have a spirit of selfishness, and yet you come to us and you say, what can I do for you? I pray, Lord Jesus, that that would transform us from the inside out, knowing that you have taken our place, that you have served us to the utter most at our deepest place of need. Would you set us free, melt our heart of selfishness, give us a heart of service? We can only do it by your grace and by your power. We pray you would make it happen in us in your powerful name. Amen.